the unknown. Mystery. Space. Have fun. Adventure. Suspense. Fantasy. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Welcome to journey number 158 of the Journey Into podcast, featuring Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut and The Haunted Spacesuit by Arthur C. Clarke, as presented by the Mindwebs radio program. I am your guide on this journey, Marshall Latham, coming to you from base camp in the Treasure Valley. Hello, everyone. I hope everything is going well for you, and I'm excited to bring you today's stories. Uh, For a few reasons, this is the first time, the first month that I've started a poll on the Patreon page where I let my uh, patrons decide which episode I'm going to play for you. So I decided that this month I would play an episode of the radio program Mindwebs. And Mindwebs was a great little show. I believe it was broadcast from the University of Wisconsin. I don't know if it ever had any national play. I assume it it had. And Michael Hansen was always the narrator for the stories and the host of the show. And it's kind of cool because it's it's got a strange vibe to it. It's very mellow. It's very, you know, the, the production on it always has some jazz music playing in the background. And the sound effects are always interesting because it's usually from an instrument. Uh, Not always. Often they bring in other voice actors, but sometimes it's just Michael reading the whole thing. And he's got a deep, rich voice. When you hear the words, the dulcet tones of whoever, (laughs) Michael Hansen always comes to my mind. Because you just got a very... I I can't do it. I I don't have as nice of a voice as he does. Uh, Similar, I guess, to maybe uh, Dave Robison. He's just got that smooth delivery and it's very consistent. And uh, depending on the story, it's it's interesting to to hear him read it. And again, I've played Mindwebs here on the podcast before. I believe I played Ray Bradbury's The Foghorn from Mindwebs. I, I think this is where I played Knock from Frederick Brown. No, I think that, that might have been X-1. But anyway, I've, I've, I'll put a list of all the other episodes that I've played on here from Mindwebs. And uh, they're a lot of fun to listen to. I, I really enjoy this show. It's got a lot of classic, classic sci-fi. And that was their point, was to read science fiction short stories from the masters, from the best. And it's, it's a great treasure trove of storytelling for me and so i'm glad to be able to present that to you uh today at least a couple stories from this like i said this episode was chosen on the patreon page 
And if you want to become a patron of the podcast, you too can vote. I'm going to run a poll every month to see what old-time radio show that I do. And every month I'll make it different. It won't be mind webs every month. It'll be either from a different show or like a different genre, like, you know, westerns. You know, I don't want to just do one western. There's so many old-time radio show westerns that I could play on here. So I would choose from a selection of westerns or something like that. And then on, I'll put it up every, at the beginning of every month on Patreon and, and the patrons can vote. Uh, so this time around, there was I'm always going to have four choices up there. This time the choices were, I believe, In the Abyss by H.G. Wells, uh, which is a story that I haven't read before. I have a collection of his short stories. I don't believe that story is in there. Uh, but it's a story of an explorer that builds this little submarine, even though it was before we had modern-day submarines. But it was like this metal sphere, and he goes down to the bottom of the ocean, and we get to go with him as he experiences things down there. And it's H.G. Wells, so you can, you know, you know there's going to be something interesting. And so that was one of the stories uh, that they could have chose. I'm trying to remember the other. Oh, the other ones were... The Devil Car, or just Devil Car, I think, by Robert Zelazny. And it's a futuristic story where the cars are all artificial intelligence, and some of them have broken away and you know become wild, so to speak, out in the world. And there's a guy that has an axe to grind against one of these wild AI cars. So that looked kind of interesting. And then I believe the last choice was... The Sound Machine by Road Dahl or Roald Dahl. And all of those are interesting authors. Uh, they all sound like interesting stories, but I didn't pick any of them. I, I curated, if you will, those four episodes and I let the patrons pick. And by a landslide, <laughs> the winner was today's episode. And, you know, maybe I'll play those uh, other episodes at a later time. Or the next time I do mind webs as a poll, I might pick a whole bunch of different stories. So uh, it'll, I think this will be kind of fun. It'll hopefully get people involved and make them feel like they're part of the podcast and selecting the content of what we're putting on here. So I believe I have talked long enough. And uh, let's get right into the episode. Now, like I said, this is very mellow. So, you know, just chill out. Uh, maybe turn on a lava lamp, maybe uh, burn some incense or something, and just listen to the music and the stories and the soundscape. <laughs> Come with me and let's journey into mind webs. Tiger. But remember, dodgeball is a sport of violence, exclusion, and degradation. So, when you're picking players in gym class, remember to pick the bigger, stronger kids for your team. That way, you can all gang up on the weaker ones, like Winston here. <laughs> nice one, son. You'll be an all-star yet. Laura, do you, do you copy?
Poppy. Anyone? Short stories from the worlds of speculative fiction. Mindwebs this time comes to you in two parts. First, we do a story from the book Welcome to the Monkey House by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. A short tale entitled Harrison Bergeron. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th amendments to the Constitution and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for example, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brains. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks, but she'd forgotten for the moment what they were all about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm, and Hazel said, That was a real pretty dance. That dance they just did. Huh? Th that dance. It was nice. Oh, yeah, yeah. George tried to think a little about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good, no better than anybody else would have been anyway. 
They were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked, so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with a vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped. But he didn't get very far with it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced. So did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. It sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer. I think it'd be real interesting hearing all the different sounds. All the things they think up. Uh, uh, only if I was the handicapper general, you know what I'd do? Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general, a woman named Diana Moon Glampers. If I was Diana Moon Glampers, I'd have chimes on Sunday. Just chimes. Kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes. Well, maybe make them real loud. I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else. Who knows better than I do what normal is? Right. George began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son who was now in jail. About Harrison. But a 21-gun salute in his head stopped that. Boy, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling. And tears stood on the rims of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa so as you can rest your handicapped bag on the pillows, honey bunch? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag that was padlocked around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little bit. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. Oh, you've been so tired lately, kind of wore out. Oh, if there was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls, just, just a few. Two years in prison and $2,000 fine for every ball I took out? I don't call that a bargain. Well, if you could just take a few out when you come home from work. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here. You just sit around. If I tried to get away with it, then other people would get away with it. And pretty soon we'd be right back to the dark ages again, with everybody competing against everybody else. Now, you wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it. Well, there you are. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? If Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question, George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. I reckon it'd fall apart. What would? Society. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows? The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say the words. He finally gave up and handed the bulletin to the ballerina. That's all right. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. 
Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful because the mask she wore was hideous. And it was easy to see that she was the strongest and most graceful of all the dancers. For her handicap bags were as big as those worn by 200-pound men. And she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was a very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was a warm, luminous, timeless melody. <coughs> Excuse me. She said and began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, has just escaped from jail, where he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He is a genius and an athlete is under handicapped and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever worn heavier handicaps. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the H.G. men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick, wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half-blind, but to give him wanging headaches besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard. In the race of life, Harrison carried 300 pounds. And to offset his good looks, the H.G. men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and cover his even white teeth with black caps at Snaggletooth Random. Boy, do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Screams and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake as well he might have. For many was the time his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen. Clanking, clownish, huge... Harrison stood in the center of the studio, the knob of the uprooted studio door still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, announcers all cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the emperor. Do you hear? I am the emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. Harrison stamped his foot and the studio shook. He bellowed... Even as I stand here, crippled, hobbled, sickened, I am a greater ruler than any man who has ever lived. Now, 
Watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper. Tore straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress. Let the first woman who dares rise to her feet claim her mate and her throne. A moment passed, and then a ballerina arose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Taking her hand, he said, Now, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? <laughs> Music! The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps, too. Play your best, and I'll make you barons and dukes and earls. The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, silly, false. But Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, waved them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played. He slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weights to their toes, and Harrison placed his big hands on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then, in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, capered, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was 30 feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it. And then, neutralizing gravity with love and pure will, they remained suspended in air inches below the ceiling. And they kissed each other for a long, long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the emperor and the empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diana Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed it at the musicians and told them they had 10 seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then the Bergeron's television tube burned out. Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicap signal shook him up, and then he sat down again and said to Hazel, 
You've been crying? Yep. What about? Well, I forget. Something real sad on television. What was it? It's all kind of mixed up in my mind. Forget sad things. I always do. That's my girl. George winced. There was the sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy. Oh, you can say that again. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy. story of Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. taken from his book Welcome to the Monkey House. Joining me in the reading in order of appearance were Carol Cowan, Ken Ost, Ward Paxton, Marty Van Cleef, and Carl Schmidt. The second story tonight is called The Haunted Spacesuit by Arthur C. Clarke. It's from the book 50 Short Science Fiction Tales, edited by Isaac Asimov and Groff Conklin. When satellite control called me, I was writing up the day's progress report in the observation bubble, the glass-domed office that juts out from the axis of the space station like the hubcap of a wheel. It was not really a good place to work, for the view was too overwhelming. Only a few yards away, I could see the construction teams performing their slow-motion ballet as they put the station together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. And beyond them, 20,000 miles below, was the blue-green glory of the full Earth, floating against the raveled star clouds. Station supervisor here, I answered, what's the trouble? Our radar is showing a small echo two miles away, almost stationary, about five miles west of Sirius. Can you give us a visual report on it? Now, anything matching our orbit so precisely could hardly be a meteor. It would have to be something we dropped, perhaps an inadequately secured piece of equipment that had drifted away from the station. So I assumed. But when I pulled out my binoculars and searched the sky around Orion, I soon found my mistake. Though this space traveler was man-made, it had nothing to do with us. I've found it, I told Control. It's someone's test satellite, cone-shaped four antennas, probably U.S. Air Force, early 1960s, judging by the design. I know they lost track of several when their transmitters failed. There were quite a few attempts to hit this orbit before they finally made it. Well, after a brief search through the files, Control was able to confirm my guess. It took a little longer to find that now, in 1988, Washington wasn't in the least bit interested in our discovery and would be just as happy if we lost it again. 
And they said, well, we can't do that. Even if nobody wants it, the thing's a menace to navigation. Someone had better go out and haul it aboard, get it out of orbit. That someone, I realized, would have to be me. I dared not detach a man from the closely knit construction teams. We were already behind schedule. And a single day's delay on this job cost a million dollars. All the radio and TV networks on Earth were waiting impatiently for the moment when they could route their programs through us and thus provide the first truly global service spanning the world from pole to pole. Well, I'll go out and get it, I answered, control. And though I tried to sound as if I were doing everyone a great favor, I was secretly not at all displeased. It had been at least two weeks since I'd been outside. The only member of the staff I passed on my way to the airlock was Tommy, our recently acquired cat. Pets mean a great deal to men thousands of miles from Earth, but there are not very many animals that can adapt themselves to a weightless environment. Tommy mewed plaintively at me as I clambered into my spacesuit, but I was in too much of a hurry to play with him. At this point, I should perhaps remind you that the suits we use on the station are completely different from the flexible affairs men wear when they want to walk around the moon. Ours are really baby space ships, just about big enough to hold one man. They're stubby cylinders about seven feet long fitted with low-powered propulsion jets. and They have a pair of accordion-like sleeves at the upper end for the operator's arms. As soon as I'd settled down inside my very exclusive spacecraft, I switched on power and checked the gauges on the tiny instrument panel. All my needles were well in the safety zone, so I gave Tommy a wink for luck, lowered the transparent hemisphere over my head and sealed myself in. For a short trip like this, I didn't bother to check the suit's internal lockers, which were used to carry food and special equipment for extended missions. As the conveyor belt decanted me into the airlock, I felt like an Indian papoose being carried along on its mother's back. Then the pumps brought the pressure down to zero. The outer door opened, and the last traces of air swept me out into the stars, turning very slowly head over heels. The station was only a dozen feet away, yet I was now an independent planet, a little world of my own. I was sealed up in a tiny mobile cylinder with a superb view of the entire universe. But I had practically no freedom of movement inside the suit. The padded seat and safety belts prevented me from turning around, though I could reach all the controls and lockers with my hands or with my feet. In space, the great enemy is the sun, which can blast you to blindness in seconds. So very cautiously, I opened up the dark filters on the night side of my suit and then turned my head to look out at the stars. At the same time, I switched the helmet's external sunshade to automatic so that whichever way the suit gyrated, my eyes would be shielded. Presently, I found my target, a bright fleck of silver whose metallic glint distinguished it clearly from the surrounding stars. I stamped on the jet control pedal and felt a mild surge of acceleration as the low-powered rocket set me moving away from the station. After ten seconds of steady thrust, I cut off the drive. It would take me five minutes to coast the rest of the way and not much longer to return to my salvage. 
It was at that moment, as I launched myself out into the abyss, that I knew that something was horribly wrong. It's never completely silent inside a spacesuit. You can always hear the gentle hiss of oxygen, the faint whir of fans and motors, the susurration of your own breathing. Even if you listen carefully enough, the rhythmic thump that's the pounding of your heart. These sounds reverberate through the suit, unable to escape into the surrounding void. They're the unnoticed background of life in space, for you are aware of them only when they change. Well, they had changed now. To them had been added a sound which I, I could not identify. It was an intermittent, muffled sort of thudding, sometimes accompanied by a scraping noise. I froze instantly holding my breath and trying to locate the alien sound with my ears. The meters on the control board gave no clues. All the needles were rock steady in their scales and there were none of the flickering red lights that would warn of impending disaster. That was some comfort, but not much. I had long ago learned to trust my instincts in such matters. It was their alarm signals that were flashing now, telling me to return to the station before it was too late. Even now, I do not like to recall those next few minutes as panic slowly flooded into my mind like a rising tide overwhelming the dikes of reason and logic that every man must erect against the mystery of the universe. I knew then what it was to face insanity. No other explanation fitted the facts. For it was no longer possible to pretend that the noise disturbing me was that of some faulty mechanism Though I was in utter isolation far from any other human being or indeed any material object, I was not alone. The soundless void was bringing to my ears the faint but unmistakable stirrings of life. In that first heart-freezing moment, it seemed that something was trying to get into my suit, something invisible seeking shelter from the cruel and pitiless vacuum of space. I whirled madly in my harness, scanning the entire sphere of vision around me except for the blazing forbidden cone towards the sun. There was nothing there, of course. There could not be, yet that purposeful scrabbling was clearer than ever. Despite the nonsense that has been written about us, it's not true that spacemen are superstitious. But can you blame me if, as I came to the end of logic's resources, I suddenly remembered how Bernie Summers had died no further from the station than I was at this very moment? It was one of those impossible accidents. It always is. Three things had gone wrong at once. Bernie's oxygen regulator had run wild and sent the pressure soaring. The safety valve had failed to blow, and a faulty joint had given way. In a fraction of a second, his suit was open to space. I had never known Bernie, but suddenly his fate became of overwhelming importance to me, for a horrible idea had come into my mind. One does not talk about these things, but a damaged spacesuit is too valuable to be thrown away, even if it has killed its wearer. It's repaired, it's renumbered, and then issued to someone else. Oh. 
What happens to the soul of a man who dies between the stars, far from his native world? Were you still here, Bernie, clinging to that last object that linked you to your lost and distant home? As I fought the nightmares that were swirling around me, for now it seemed that the scratchings and soft fumblings were coming from all directions, there was one last hope to which I clung. For the sake of sanity, I had to prove that this wasn't Bernie's suit, that the metal wall so closely wrapped around me had never been another man's coffin. It took me several tries before I could press the right button and switch my transmitter to the emergency wavelength. Station, I called. I'm in trouble. Get records, dude. Check my suit. I never finished. They say my yell wrecked the microphone. But what man, what man alone in the absolute isolation of space would not have yelled when something patted him softly on the back of the neck? I must have lunged forward despite the safety harness and smashed against the upper edge of the control panel. When the rescue squad reached me a few minutes later, I was still unconscious with an angry bruise across my forehead. And so I was the last person in the whole satellite relay system to know what had happened. When I came to my senses an hour later, all our medical staff was gathered around my bed. But it was quite a while before the doctors and certainly the cute little space nurse bothered to look at me. They were much too busy playing with the three little kittens that our badly misnamed Tommy had been rearing in my spacesuit's number three storage locker. The second story tonight was The Haunted Spacesuit by Arthur C. Clarke. It's from the book 50 Short Science Fiction Tales, which is edited by Isaac Asimov and Groff Conklin. This is Michael Hansen speaking. Production engineer for Mindwebs is Steve Gordon. Mindwebs is produced at WHA Radio in Madison, a service of University of Wisconsin Extension. So there was Mindwebs with Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut and The Haunted Spacesuit by Arthur C. Clarke. I, I enjoyed both of these stories. I, I, I talked on one of my Patreon addresses several months ago about a little writing 
class that I took with Ken Scholes, and he had us read a bunch of stories, some of them newer, some of them amateur authors, uh, but also from the greats like Ursula K. Le Guin or also uh, Kurt Vonnegut. I read this story, uh, Harrison Bergeron, for that writing exercise. And it was a fascinating story to me. I had never read it. I'd, I'd read other uh, Vonnegut stories or heard them, but I had never heard this one. And like I said at the, at the time, it was it's very much a think piece. It's a very political story without picking sides, you know, without saying your politics are wrong or my politics are right, or even declaring what the politics of the author of Kurt Vonnegut were, but it's an interesting thought. You know, we often talk about, well, wouldn't it be nice if everyone were equal? Wouldn't it be nice if nobody did better than other people and, and everybody had what everybody else had? And you can take that concept too far, which this story illustrates perfectly in the extreme example of those ideals that everybody should be equal, everybody should have the same things, everybody, nobody should be made to feel worse than other people. And to do that, you should handicap others. If, if people are great thinkers, they shouldn't be. If people are strong in sports or graceful in their dancing, they shouldn't be because not everybody else will have that opportunity. And so if that one person, the average person, cannot have that capability, then nobody can. And it's just fascinating to me to, I mean, you could just think about that for a long time and, and reflect on the ideals or the ideas, I should say, that this story puts forth. It's very fascinating. And he just does a great job. And I love the framing of it too, where the uh, parents of Harrison are kind of the focal characters that we see everything through and what they're watching on TV. And it's fascinating, you know, that as Harrison's father has any thoughts or whatever, that he receives a, a glaring sound in his ear that can't that he can't concentrate on anything for very long. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I've never thought about how would you handicap somebody who's smart? How would you handicap somebody that is stronger than I am? Well, you you make him wear bags filled with birdshot that weigh him down so that he can't do as much as he normally could. Or, you know, a dancer that they can't be graceful. They can't, they can't be better than anybody else at dancing because, and you know, to, in my thinking, it's like, well, then what's the point? If you're going to have ballerinas and they can't dance any better than me or my sister or anybody that I know, then why would I sit down at the front of the TV and watch them dance? Because I can watch my neighbors dance. So what's the point, you know? And then I thought it was interesting too, where the announcers, the newscasters, you know, they have speech impediments or they sound terrible when they talk. And uh, that was my Charlie in the box impression. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. I just find that story fascinating. So I'm really glad that the people picked this story. I didn't choose it necessarily to make everybody pick this story. You know, it, this this was kind of a weighted uh, poll because this was a twofer, right? You got two stories for the price, quote unquote, of one. Instead of one longer short story, 
you got two very short stories. And uh, so that's kind of cool. And maybe that weighted, like I said, this uh, selection. But I'm, I'm glad. I, I hope you enjoy this. All you who voted for it um, enjoy this this story. And the haunted spacesuit, I thought, was really well done as well. You know, the ending of it is comedic. You know, it's got that little twist at the end. You're like, oh, okay, I see what was going on. But I'm always fascinated by stories of space and underwater um, because they are very isolating. You know, of course, I love Star Wars and Star Trek. Those are very active and uh, may or may not have moral quandaries or whatever. But it doesn't show on a regular basis the isolation of space. And so I'm always fascinated by those stories that that dwell on that. You know, like Gravity with uh, Sandra Bullock, that movie, was fascinating to me. You know, what would you do if you're the last person or the only person out there in outer space? Nobody else was around you. Sure, they might be able to send up a sh another shuttle or somebody, but basically you're on your own. What about the people that are in right now? There's people in the International Space Station. And maybe they've been there for months. Maybe they just got there. You know, what does that do to your mind? And yes, they have each other to talk to, but what if you don't get along, you know? So just that isolation of space or the isolation of being at the bottom of the ocean. You know, like Michael Crichton wrote a book called Sphere. And it's always been one of my favorite books of his. You know, of course, I love Jurassic Park and timeline and some of the other ones that he wrote but sphere always just captured my mind because again you have these small amount of people isolated at the bottom of the ocean in this exotic environment where if you step outside you could die because of the pressure or you could you know or hundreds of or drowned and uh you know similar to what they experience in outer space uh you know a bit the abyss is another great movie with that kind of a thing even something like Kristen stewart's underwater has those elements that i enjoy but it again alien right i, I can name all of these different sci-fi movies or things that show you that the isolation in space and here's this guy floating out in space and he starts hearing things that he's never heard before and he starts feeling things like well, something's not right and then he starts to think about a guy who died out in space. And was this his spacesuit? Because they always reuse the spacesuits. Man, that's creepy. That's scary. But it's not like a boogeyman kind of thing. It's like, holy crap, I'm on my own. I, there's nothing I can do to escape. And it's just that fear and that creepiness that could come in. I don't know how well I would do out in space. I don't know how well I would do... Uh, submerged down at the bottom of the ocean or even in a submarine you know uh, you watch movies like hunt for red october or uh u541 or whatever that was that wasn't 541 but uh u51 anyway any any submarine movie there's that element of like you're in a cramped space underneath the ocean you can't escape there's no way to get out you know so there's that claustrophobic scenario but also just again isolation i keep saying the same words over and over again um, but that kind of thing fascinates me and so i really enjoyed the haunted spacesuit you know it was kind of neat that there was a little stinger at the end you know a little comedic this is this explains what was going on in the spacesuit he was never in any danger freaking cats 
<laughs> they always cause problems, man. If there was a puppy, well, a puppy would have done the same kind of thing. I'm not going to make the same mistake as of others that I know of who have joined the great cat versus dog debate uh, to their downfall. <laughs> I like them both. Uh, not equally, but I'm not going to tell you which side <laughs> that you may you may already know based on things I've said in the past. But anyway, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed MindWebs. Seek it out. You know, you can go find other episodes of MindWebs out on the internet. Um, I get mine from archive.org, and I don't say that. <laughs> I used to worry about, oh, if I let people know where I get these episodes from, then my my secret's going to be out and they're not going to care about listening to this podcast because they can get it anywhere else. Well, that's always true. If you like old-time radio shows, you can always go find them. That's what I do. But hopefully you enjoy listening to me talk about these stories, introducing these stories. Hopefully you enjoy this, the selections that I pick and uh, present to you here on the show. And at least the patrons that voted for this, I mean, hey, it's not my fault if you didn't like it. So, <laughs> anyway, I hope you did enjoy this show. I hope you have a great month. Uh, I'll be back next month with another old-time radio show. I am working on other things as well, full cast productions and things like that. So that'll be coming down the pike. But I definitely want to get this out, and uh, I wanted to commit to at least something once a month other than you know, the normal delusions of grandeur and or maybe an outfield excursion, depending on the recording schedule of those. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Stay safe out there and journey on. Hey, did you know that the Journey Into podcast is produced under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 license? Well, it is. Maybe it's even 4.0 now. Who knows? But what does that mean to you? That means that you can listen to this podcast. You can share it with whoever you would like to in whatever format. But you must state where the source of the audio came from. And you can't try to sell it for money. And you can't change it or alter it so that it's something other than what I created. That It protects me as a creator of this podcast uh, from being ripped off. But, of course, hey, feel free. Start your own podcast. Do your own editing. Do your own hosting. Pick your own stories. Go for it. I'll listen. I dare you.